0: faith and reason podcasts new media for the new evangelization from franciscan university of steubenville find more at faithandreason.com well thank you for your welcome this is my first visit To the United States and I've been asked why I have never visited before. (laughs) My answer is that I have never before had a reason to make this journey and today I'm delighted to have been given the best of reasons by the Franciscan University of Steubenville. And my visit allows me the opportunity to record something of the gratitude felt across the world for the work of this university and its contribution to the new evangelization. It's also a privilege to give this lecture in honour of the Pope of my own youth, Blessed Paul VI. I was once asked in an interview what my impressions were when Pope Paul closed the Second Vatican Council. And I had to remind my interviewer that I was only six years old at the time. My impressions would have been of doubtful value. My deepest personal impressions of Pope Paul were in his last years marked by faithful perseverance in serving and suffering too for the church, something which has left a lasting impression on me. Our Holy Father, Pope Francis, spoke at Pope Paul's beatification of how, and these are Pope Francis's words, facing the advent of a secularized and hostile society, he could hold fast with far-sightedness and wisdom, and at times alone to the helm of the bark of Peter. Pope Paul would himself repeat the words of the Apostle Paul at his last celebration of the Solemnity of St. Peter and Paul in 1978. They are words which we must hope to repeat at the end of our own lives and mission. I have fought the good fight to the end. I have run the race to the finish. I have kept the faith. May it be true for all of us. This evening in this memorial lecture, I want us to turn to a saint of the new evangelization, a saint many of you will already have met in the communion of the saints, Saint John Baptist Mary Vianney, more popularly known as the Cure of Ars. Last year I had the privilege of leading an international retreat for English speaking priests in Ars, and tonight I would like to lead you in mind and heart to that tiny village in the obscurity of the French countryside, to meet a saint whose witness the great John Paul II declared would never fade in the sight of the Church. In the letter to the priests of the world in 1986, John Paul II wrote, of the Curé. His example cannot be forgotten. More than ever, we need his witness, his intercession, in order to face the situations of our times. Let us not doubt that he still presents to us today the great evangelical challenge. A saint from whose personal from whose pastoral plan Pope Benedict XVI proposed that every priest in the world should learn. I want to suggest that in our task as catechists, we have much to learn from the new evangelization of that tiny village of ours and from its curé. In this lecture, I hope you will be able to follow a coherent line of thought. However, my best hope is that one or two points perhaps will strike you and stay with you in your prayer and preparation for the catechetical task. Now I'm conscious that a small rural community in the first decades of the 19th century might seem to present few parallels to the challenges and complexities of the early 21st century with which you are so familiar. However, the saints are more than people who are merely ahead of their times. They belong to all times. In the saints we see the gospel made visible, and glimpse the Church at her truest. And it is for this reason that the successors of St Peter have for more than a century now drawn our attention to the luminous, enduring figure of the curé of ours. It is to what is perennial in his life and witness that we must look in these present times uniquely entrusted by God to you and to me. And this evening I want to point to St. John Vianney's enduring importance as a catechist. It was not without a certain disappointment that on a winter's day in 1818 the young John Vianney first caught sight of the village of Ars, with its broken down church and some 230 inhabitants. How small it is, a man of such greatness of heart would remark with a sigh. However, in a gesture which St. John Paul II was later to imitate as Pope, he knelt down and kissed the ground of his mission, the mission which had been entrusted to him. It was then that he said, this place will not be big enough to contain all who will come here. In all the great ambitions of your heart and mine to serve the church, we too must learn to embrace the specific mission we have received from God, no matter how bleak the human prospects may seem to be. And we must be ready to accept that our desire to share the faith with all the world starts with each person, each soul, one by one. And how clearly we recognise this as we read our Lord's life in the Gospels. So it will be for you and for me, whether we start with 230 people or 23 or 23,000. We need the same supernatural, perspective that we find in St. John Vianney, who told the first parishioner he met a shepherd boy who'd guided him through the February mists. My friend, you have shown me the way to ours. I shall show you the way to heaven. I shall show you the way to heaven we can recognize that in this tiny village community two centuries removed from our times so many of the echoes and challenges familiar to us so that ours can offer a pattern for the new evangelization abbe trushu the most authoritative biographer of the Curie of Ars, describes the pastoral situation he found. In these terms, many of the inhabitants were pagans in practice, and if all faith had not vanished, very little was left. It is true that post-revolutionary Ars no longer saw the club of free thinkers meeting within the desecrated church nor the young pastor who at the time of the revolution had publicly renounced his priesthood. However, the enduring state of the people had become one of indifference and profound religious ignorance. They assumed they knew the faith, while in reality the gospel barely shaped any aspect of their lives. In this situation, as you can imagine, few families had managed to pass on their Catholic faith to the next generation. And we must never fail to note the resistance to the cure's efforts to dispel this all-pervading ignorance. We can attribute many of the harsh and strident phrases which he used in the early years to his desire to shake a wall of complacency. I shouted, he later observed, because you were deaf. His strongest words were directed to the adults whom he declared had allowed the moral dignity of entire generations to be fatally compromised. He observed, and these are his words, under the eyes of parents who are either dumb or accomplices, things are done here which are reminiscent of pagan times. His appeals would also be directed to the elderly, whom he described as old, bespectacled villains, who watched the entertainments of the young and added their coarse jokes and blasphemies. Yet on the great feast days, when much of the community still gathered together in ours, this preaching was met by openly affected disinterest, including loud yawning. It was to such a place, to such a moment, that this young priest was sent by the vicar general with these less Than encouraging words. Vianney would find little love for God in ours, he told him. At least he would bring some love for God there. John Vianney had himself grown up amid the turbulence and horrors of the French Revolution. He'd assumed from his youth that to be a priest was to be a man willing to die for his faith. He looked to the example of the priest's his own family had sheltered in their clandestine ministry, which for some ended in martyrdom by the guillotine. His education had been drastically disrupted in those revolutionary years, with such detrimental effects when he embarked on the higher studies of the seminary. His hopes of becoming a priest had seemed to be altogether extinguished by the Napoleonic Wars into which he was swept up as a reluctant recruit. However, he was assisted to ordination by the tireless efforts of one of those heroic priests who had himself survived the revolution. Amidst all the upheaval of military occupation and even without a bishop in his own diocese, John Vianney was ordained to the priesthood in the days following the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. France being under military occupation, he was twice turned back by the Austrian troops, literally on the road to ordination. However, St. John Vianney recognised from the outset that the real battle for his people was not to be fought with force or violence. He never doubted the truth of St. Paul's words to the Ephesians. We are not contending with flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness. Against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavens. The real struggle had to be fought, he knew, on a different field. Right from the outset, the people of ours were never in doubt where they would find the cure in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament. In his biographies, St. John of St. John Vianney, much is said of the visible manifestations of the devil. Significantly, the cure himself said little of what he called the villainous grappin, except in such telling phrases, the devil almost became a companion. The task of the cure, as for you and for me, is to accept the invitation in our mission to be, in St. Paul's words, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The apostle describes this as a preparation for the real battle of our lives. Take, he says, the whole armour of God that you will be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. I know you'll be familiar with the armor St. Paul describes, girded with truth, having the breastplate of righteousness, shod with the gospel of peace. Above all, he tells us, taking up the shield of faith with the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And this leads us, as it led the Curie, to pray at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And this is precisely how the young Curie of ours prepared, equipped himself for the real and decisive battle of his lifetime. And we can understand that this was with such well-founded confidence that allowed my fellow countryman, St. Edmund Campion, to declare when faced with an equally impossible mission. The expense is reckoned, the enterprise begun. It is of God, it cannot be withstood. So the faith was planted, so it must be restored. And this is the calculation on which we must base our mission to. If we are to understand the mission of the saint of ours, we must first recognize the foundations of such confidence. Whenever he spoke of his poor self, he never wanted us to think he was exaggerating. At the very outset of the conversion of ours, his brother-priests prepared a petition to the bishop declaring him incapable of the ministry entrusted to him, especially of guiding the growing number of penitents in confession. When that petition mistakenly fell into the curé's hands, he famously signed it and personally forwarded it to the bishop. (laughs) Later, meeting a rather grand Parisian lady who expressed surprise at the sight of this diminutive and slightly shabby figure, he remarked, your experience is not that of the Queen of Sheba. She was surprised to find so much. You are surprised to find so little. In his last years, when receiving the cape and ornamental hood of a canon of the diocese, he remarked that nothingness is now dressed up as pride. In 1841, a young priest, not without a tinge of jealousy, I suspect, would write to him, when a man knows as little theology as you do, he should not go into the confessional. And I think the cure's reply could almost have served as the basis for his canonization. His letter, I won't read it all, but it began with these words. Most dear and most venerated confrere, what good reasons I have for loving you. You are the only person who really knows me. (laughs) St. John Vianney was a third order Franciscan a significant fact for this university. And I believe appreciating the spirit of the poor man of Assisi is one of the keys to understanding the man who became the patron saint of the parish priests of the world. However, in all his human poverty like Saint Francis, he never doubted the immensity of the treasure that had been entrusted to him. And we quickly recognize how such a priest would be granted the grace of opening up the way of a new evangelization. A phrase would later be much repeated, that ours is no longer ours. Enormous numbers came to that tiny village to receive the sacrament of penance and reconciliation how insightfully Pope Francis has called this the sacrament of the new evangelization, giving great impetus to its celebration by the beautiful initiative, 24 hours for the Lord. The penitents who find their way to our churches through all the days of the hours of the day and the night, are surely an image today of that pilgrimage of ours. Estimates wildly vary, but it is suggested that between a quarter and a tenth of the then population of France personally went to confession in ours. The visitor was met in the summer months with people sleeping out in the meadows, And a never ceasing cue of penitence, which demanded the cure punctually, began his day at 1 a.m. each morning. Significantly, catechesis took a central place for the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. The catechesis that St. John Vianney had given daily and unfailingly from his first week. In ours. There would be a break in confessions at 11 a.m. each day to allow the curé to give his catechesis. And it's a testament to his commitment to the catechetical task and his sheer perseverance, which began in his first days in ours with daily catechism for the boys at 6 a.m. and for the girls at 11 a.m every day. He had offered catechism for the adults every Sunday before vespers in a largely empty church. In the tradition of catechesis encouraged by the Council of Trent, he knew that his role as pastor demanded this uncompromisingly of him. Was happy to be assisted by co-workers, In later years, he nevertheless saw the task as catechizing, as a responsibility which could never be entirely delegated. He knew he must, as priest and pastor, give his own witness to the beauty and coherence of the faith. Entering the parish church of ours today, which remains much as St. John Vianney left it, you will see something unusual. A purpose-built bench and lectern, carefully situated so he would not have to turn his back to the tabernacle to which he would frequently turn during his catechism classes. It was in this place of catechesis that most of the phrases remembered today were spoken and recorded by his hearers. And the people of ours would eventually be recognised as outstanding in their knowledge of the faith. Now, a great English Cardinal, Henry Edward Manning, may have inadvertently started a misunderstanding with regard to St John Vianney in the preface to the first biography translated into English, Cardinal Manning described the simplicity of the curé of Ars as constituting a rebuke to the intellectual pride of the 19th century. We can see how this was the case. However, this expression may have also led to the impression that John Vianney was an anti intellectual figure. This was not true. Pope St John Paul always expressed wonder at the curé's personal library, which is still preserved in ours. It gives the clearest testimony to his lifelong commitment to study and to learning. It was with the help of these substantive tomes that he would prepare his preaching and catechesis, the sole aim of which was to dispel ignorance and lead a countless number to holiness. Theologians who attended his catechetical talks in later years would be astonished by the sureness of his theological understanding when expressing complex ideas in short and vivid phrases. Now, when I was a young priest, it was sometimes suggested that priests might get in the way of the professional task of catechesis. The idea was circulating that the clergy should really leave this task to the experts. Now, I've no doubt that many priests may indeed lack the pedagogical knowledge and the skills of a fully trained catechist. However, we must never doubt that every priest in his pastoral ministry is called to be a catechist. In the training you have received, it must surely become one of your tasks to assist priests and indeed the bishops in carrying out the catechetical task entrusted to them. In Catechesi Trudendi, Saint John Paul II, echoing the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, declared the bishop to be the catechist par excellence. If there were any danger that this might be understood merely as an honorific title, the saintly Pope John Paul wrote to the bishops these words You are the ones primarily responsible. For catechesis. Accept therefore what I say to you from the heart. Let the concern to foster active and effective catechesis yield to no other care, whatever, in any way. Strong words. This great saint of our lifetimes could not have been more emphatic when he added, You can be sure that if catechesis is done well in your local churches, everything else will be easier to do. And of priests, he wrote with equal insistence, I beg you ministers of Jesus Christ, do not for lack of zeal or because of some unfortunate preconceived idea, leave the faithful without catechesis. Let it not be said that the children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. It was not natural giftedness, which led St John Vianney to give such prominence to catechesis in his rural parish. He was far from being a natural academic, yet he imposed on himself the absolute duty of going over and over again the doctrine of the church and the writings of the great saints. In his struggle to study, we can recognize our own lifelong task to grow in all the knowledge and skills that will help equip us to pass on the faith of the church. And it wasn't for any human applause that the Curé did this over four decades. He preached each Sunday with catechetical intent. At the beginning, he had few results and no encouragement. We know he set up a desk in the sacristy where he studied his books, prayed before the high altar, and then would write laboriously, sometimes for seven consecutive hours late into the night. The lack of appreciation of the preaching and teaching that he struggled to write out in full and then memorise, is seen in one single fact. Most of his sermons, including most of what he wrote about the love of God and the Eucharist, were burnt by his assistant pastor. It seemed that on paper, they were of no lasting interest to anyone. And perhaps the same fate might await some of our best efforts. The Curie of ours had to deal with a notoriously poor memory. We have descriptions of him finding himself lost for words because his memory suddenly failed him. It was greatly to the amusement of his parishioners that he stuttered and stumbled over his words. He'd been granted no natural eloquence his voice being described as high-pitched and even squeaky. St. John Paul II noted how later in teaching catechism he came to express himself more spontaneously, always with lively and clear conviction. St. John Vianney would admire the oratorical power Of the great preachers of his time as when the famous Father Lacordaire had preached in ours in 1845. He admired their oratorical skills but he never shared them. We can only imagine what it cost him in his daily efforts to preach and to give catechesis at first to so few and then to so very many. Yet this great catechetical enterprise had its immense and lasting effect. It would have greatly surprised him that his words with their doctrinal accuracy and powerful images would eventually find their way into the catechism of the Catholic Church. The catechesis which had started for the children and adults of the parish, developing a daily pattern of classes, eventually addressed an international audience which included the merely curious, the hostile free thinkers, and the visiting prelates and theologians. However, it was his willingness to offer this testimony itself, rather than the particular skills which accompanied it, which remains the vital lesson for us today. During the time of the recent Synod. Of bishops on the family, I recognized how it was my own task as a diocesan bishop to give testimony to the beautiful coherence of Catholic teaching on marriage amid the voices of dissension, confusion, which so often seize the airwaves. And I have absolutely no doubt that others could have done this better and with finer theological and pedagogical skills. However, the mission of Bishop had been given to me, and it was necessary to raise my own voice as pastor to teach what was in danger of being lost sight of. In this Paul VI lecture, I want to recall your attention to the fact that in St. Peter's Square on the 30th, of June 1968, Pope Paul proclaimed what became known as the credo of the people of God. Amid the gathering confusion of the late 1960s, Pope Paul saw it as his duty as the very successor of Saint Peter and the supreme pastor of the church to make his own public profession of faith. He did so by setting out in coherent summary the faith of the church, most especially in those areas of doctrine which were being doubted or even contested. St. John Paul II left us in no doubt that if the new evangelization is to be effective, our catechesis must convey the full truth of the gospel, for that fullness of truth Is the very source of our authority, of our capacity to teach with authority, an authority which the faithful easily recognize when we address the essentials and deliver what we have received. Whatever context in which you as a lay catechist are today called to work, no matter the communication skills a particular priest or bishop. May have. I want to propose there is a similar need for the voice of pastors to be heard, giving testimony to the faith, especially when authentic doctrine is contested or even denied. As lay catechists, you are called to work alongside priests and indeed bishops in this mission of catechesis that has become so urgent today. St John Vianney has something to teach us about working together. The assistant pastor, the co-pastor who was sent to ours often patronized him and caused him many difficulties. Yet the cure persevered in this collaboration, refusing even when the opportunity was offered to have his troublesome co-worker removed. The curé would also struggle to understand some of the administrative decisions of his bishop with regard to the Providence Project. This was a project aimed at the Christian formation of the young, and by Franciscan inspiration, it had relied solely on divine providence for its material needs. The curé would say with resignation, I cannot see God's will in this, but if Monsignor does. Amid the human difficulties we will encounter, we have in the curé of ours an example of the willingness always to work with others in the mission we share, even when we, like him, might not always find this easy. The curé saw things from a supernatural point of view. He never lost this point of view, and neither must you or I. Amongst all the words spoken during the pontificate of blessed Paul VI, the phrase most often repeated today came to prominence in one of his last letters, Evangelii Nunciandi. It was his observation that modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. And if he does listen to teachers, it is because they are witnesses. This phrase might mistakenly be used to suggest that the objective teaching of doctrine is to give way to the subjectivity of personal witness. In reality, this striking phrase of Pope Paul was to stress that we cannot effectively communicate the faith and doctrine of the church apart from, in his own words, the witness of sanctity. In the catechist, whether lay catechist or priest catechist, the path towards holiness must be walked alongside the work of of catechesis. We should recall that people were first drawn to ours in the hope of glimpsing holiness. If you and I think back to the priests and teachers who had most impact in the work of catechesis, it was those we saw in whom we saw the same struggle for holiness. Our best efforts as catechists can never be divorced from this same striving for holiness in our own lives. This is also the lesson of ours. In that remarkable little book, The Soul of the Apostolate, we're reminded how the true spiritual fruitfulness of all our apostolic efforts whether seen or unseen, is entirely bound up with our union with Christ. Blessed Paul VI would say that the key to the teaching and the whole renewal sought by the Second Vatican Council would be found in the universal call to holiness proposed in Lumen Gentium, chapter 5. This, we can say, was precisely the attraction which eventually brought hundreds of thousands from across Europe to listen to the catechesis of the Curie of ours. And we note how St John Vianney always took care to point away from himself, refocusing the attention of every visitor he met towards the altar and the tabernacle saying, he is here, he is here, the one who loves us so much, he is here. St John Vianney did not write a best-selling book or leave us a manual describing how to convert a parish or to be a successful catechist. It is perhaps the most terrifying thing about his witness, That he was fully convinced that the same grace of conversion, the same new evangelization, could be brought about in every parish of the world. Indeed, he sincerely believed that any other priest or catechist more able than he could have brought about greater things. When asked how the conversion of ours was accomplished, he always pointed to the place where he knelt before the tabernacle. Priests who asked him why their own parishes remained steadfastly unconverted received his innocent inquiries as to what mortifications they had undertaken, what vigils of prayer had these priests maintained. In so many ways we each have to learn the lesson. I tried to express in my Episcopal motto, nihil sino Christo, nothing without Christ, words taken from the 15th chapter of St. John's Gospel. When we hear our Lord say to us, without me, you can do nothing. Notice Christ does not say to us, without me, you will be able to do some things. No, he tells us emphatically, we can do nothing. I love the story of a saint of the 20th century, Saint Josemaria, who, walking through the financial centre of London, felt suddenly overwhelmed by the task he'd been given and interiorly heard these words, you can't, I can. How often you and I must learn those same words. The Curie of ours teaches us not to seek easy, instantaneous results, but shows us a path of perseverance in the new evangelization. He refused to allow the 230 souls entrusted to his care to be left in the misery of their sins and not recognise the greatness to which they were called. And that consists in the very goal the Second Vatican Council would remind us of, nothing less than the fullness of the Christian life, the perfection of charity. St John Vianney's biographers tell us that it took him more than eight years in his parish to reclaim the semblance of Sunday as the day of the Lord. It took at least 25 years to overcome the night dancing, which had become the major source of moral disorder amongst young and old alike. And it was for 27 years that the curé laboured single-handedly to overcome religious ignorance by daily catechesis. No quick results. Pope Benedict XVI observed how the curé devoted himself completely to his parish's conversion, setting before all else the Christian education of the people in his care. It would be the catechetical task he continued to the very last week of his life. The process of beatification and canonization would highlight the fact that John Mary Vianney had lived the virtue of patience to an heroic degree. It is helpful for us to dispel any romantic illusions about the new evangelization. John Vianney would say, If on my arrival in Ars, I had foreseen all I was to suffer there, I would have died on the spot. The complaints, the criticisms, the false allegations, the threats are all so well documented in his biographies that we can understand his comment in 1843, I thought a time would come when people would rout me out of ours with sticks. However, in these very circumstances, he described as grievous calumny and, co- of, of grievous calumny and contradiction, he discovered in his words to suffer lovingly is to suffer no longer. To flee the cross is to be crushed beneath its weight. Oh, I did have crosses almost more than I could bear. Then I started praying for love of crosses and I felt happy. I said to myself, truly, there is no happiness but in the cross. And this was the key to his mission. He turned the contradictions to which he might have reacted with anger and bitterness into a cross he was ready to embrace. And we can sometimes be tempted to rebel against the crosses and contradictions which will inevitably be part of our mission. However, they too can be turned into the means of accomplishing our mission. We should pray for the love of the cross, the curé said, then it will become sweet. It is in this path of patience and perseverance we are called to walk alongside him, now in the new evangelization. I cannot forget the advice of Popes St. Gregory the Great, who counseled patience to the first missionaries to the English people. In these words, I repeat for you today, it is certainly impossible to eradicate all errors from obstinate minds at one stroke. And whoever wishes to climb a mountaintop climbs gradually step by step, and not in one leap. Part of that sweetness of the cross the cure used in seeking the conversion of ours was to spiritually embrace its people, the souls entrusted to his care, and especially the most difficult people. Reading the accounts of the state of ours, we might suspect that most of the people there were difficult. In Pope Benedict's words, he was actively present to the people he was sent to serve. And in this, he shows you and I, we must never give up on first impressions, but rather keep sight of the supernatural goal God desires for each one. This is the means to persevere in our efforts. Now, I'm conscious that I'm speaking to catechists at the beginning of your service of the church. I've spoken to you of a saint for the new evangelization of which you will be part. I have commended to you the vital role of the priest as catechist and drawn lessons from the conversion of ours for our catechetical mission today. I have stressed the lesson of patient perseverance, in this mission, however, beneath the surface events, I also wish to recall the perennial in the perennial witness of ours and have pointed to that deeper spiritual struggle which the saints saw most clearly beneath the surface of human events of the classroom of the parish of the diocese, in looking to the saint of the new evangelization we cannot allow ourselves to forget the words of St. John Paul II at the dawn of this third Christian millennium, who pondered the question put to St. Peter on the day of Pentecost, what must we do? I've no hesitation in quoting his response in full. We put this question, said John Paul II, with trusting optimism but without underestimating the problems we face. We are certainly not seduced by the naive expectation that faced with the great challenges of our time, we shall find some magic formula. No, we shall not be saved by a formula, but by a person and the assurance he gives us. I am with you. It is not therefore a matter of inventing a new program. The programme already exists. It is the plan found in the gospel and in the living tradition. It is the same as ever. Ultimately, it has its centre in Christ himself, who is to be known, loved and imitated, so that in him we may live the life of the Trinity and with him transform history until its fulfilment in the heavenly Jerusalem. This programme, for all times is our program for the third millennium. This was the program, the goal of St. John Mary Vianney and remains our program today. St. John Paul had observed how the Curie of Ars taxed his ingenuity to devise initiatives adopted to his time and his parishioners, never sparing himself in numerous efforts and initiatives. However, all these priestly activities were centered on the Eucharist, catechesis, and the sacrament of reconciliation. The same must surely be true for us. Yes, we need to use our imaginations as catechists. We must respond to the specific needs and circumstances we find in every time and in each place. But we must never lose sight of this greater plan, the plan which is the same as ever. It is the characteristic of the Catechesis given by the Curie of ours, that everything he said would invariably lead people towards the Holy Eucharist and to a more fruitful reception of the sacrament of penance. Pope Benedict spoke of a virtuous circle by which the curé sought in every way by his preaching and powers of persuasion to help his parishioners rediscover the meaning and beauty of the sacrament of penance, presenting it as an inherent demand of the Eucharistic presence. Our own catechesis is never to be reduced merely to the academic, but has this same goal in mind of leading each Soul to that renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ, which Pope Francis speaks of with such urgency today. The Curie of ours saw clearly, the lesson Pope Benedict XVI has drawn from the long history of the church, that every great reform has in some way been linked to the rediscovery of belief in the Lord's Eucharistic presence among his people. In the same letter on the Sacrament of Charity, Pope Benedict observes, today there is a need to rediscover that Jesus Christ is not a private conviction or an abstract idea, but a real person who's becoming part of human history is capable of renewing the life of every man and woman. The last picture of St John Vianney I want to leave you with comes from the final days of his frailty, when he was so ill and weakened that he could was barely able to speak. In those last days, his catechesis continued and was described then as a series of, ex- of exclamations accompanied by tears. On the final day, he appeared In the parish church, his voice no longer audible to the crowds. He simply pointed repeatedly to the tabernacle and wept. All his catechesis, we might say, had this goal of leading every soul towards that wonder and recognition expressed in the words of the Second Vatican Council, that in the blessed Eucharist is found the whole spiritual good of the Church, namely Christ himself, our Pasch. It was with this last gesture that the curé of ours fell silent in history, fell silent as a catechist. And with that image in our minds, I wish to complete this lecture by pointing with St. John Mary Vianney to that same goal. Thank you. Faith and Reason podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.